In China, during the feudal era, women in seclusion developed a secret language called Nushu. The documentary Hidden Letters profiles two women keeping Nushu alive. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. I interviewed the director of Hidden Letters, Violet Dufang. She grew up in Shanghai and moved to the U.S. as a graduate student to study journalism. She's dedicated herself to telling stories about China for audiences there and abroad. She served as a producer on several projects, including the historical documentary Nanking and the observational portrait Please Remember Me, about an elderly Chinese couple coping with Alzheimer's. That film had a theatrical release in China and led to positive changes in how Alzheimer's is treated. For Hidden Letters, Violet wanted to explore the secret language of Nushu through the eyes of two contemporary women who study the script. One woman, Hu Sheng, lives in Jiangyang, the rural county where Nushu got started. The second woman is the artist Simu, representing the urban experience in Shanghai. The film is beautifully photographed and multi-layered. Violet is keenly interested in how China's embrace of capitalism has affected all aspects of society, including new pressures on women. Nushu's revival is partly motivated by people seeking to make a profit by branding the ancient script under merchandise. Hidden Letters is on the Oscar shortlist of 15 documentaries that will be narrowed down to five nominees later this month. I reached Violet at her home in New York and started by asking how she learned about Nushu. So I learned about Nushu about 17 years ago when I read the book by Lisa C. Uh, of a very popular novel called Snowflower and a Secret Fan. And it's a, it's a fiction novel based on Nushu. And I remember reading it 17 years ago, and which gave me goosebumps um, because as a Chinese woman, we all knew that, uh, you know, in our history, in our literature, there's little records of women um, because, you know, women only of elite classes can have access to education. So to have such a language as part of our history that women created and only for us to share women's experiences from feudal society, especially the lower income community, I was so fascinated by it and also felt ashamed that it's not something that I grew up learning and it should be part of my history as a Chinese woman. Um, so, and I also know that the surprise that I had of discovering this language is largely shared with, you know, most of the Chinese population because this is something that most of the Chinese don't even know about. Um, but fast forward 17 years, um, I received, uh, t I think 10 years later, I received a call from uh, my two producers, Mette Chamantikas and Jing Chen. And I didn't realize it was around the same time, like 17 years ago, when I was reading the book, that Meta and her mother, who is, uh, her mother is, is Chinese, and Meta is half Chinese and half Norwegian, they were reading the same book. And her mother from Shanghai, um, living in Norway, has been pushing her to make a film about Nishu. So she actually has been... Um, thinking about it, and in the end, reach out to Jane and said that, who should we work with and make a film about Nushu? So both of them came to me, and I'm like, wow, I'm so fascinated by this, and I already know about this, and I'm very interested, but if we wanted to make a history film, that's not what I want to do. 
Um, if there's a way I can tie that with women's experiences in contemporary China, that's a film I want to make because that was around the time that I was living in China and I got married and became a young mother. And all of a sudden, I started to feel all these gender um, suppressions and pressures as a woman that I didn't think I would experience before. So because of all that, I think I was really interested to finding a way of tying you through as a, as a as a lens to look at intergenerational women's experiences in China, particularly today. Can you elaborate on some of your own experiences? You know, what you, what the pressures you were feeling? Yeah, I, I moved back to China in 2010. And uh, that was the time that, you know, I got engaged and, 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 and I married my husband. Um, both of us had education in, in, in the U.S. But... Um, I think all of a sudden I started to, the first thing I experienced, I think, is the vast gender income gap that's happening in China. And that was not something that's familiar to me when I grew up, because under more communist time, when I was brought up, um, I was more brought up by my dad uh, in a way that, you know, it was uh, in a way there's no gender income gap. So, you know, my dad and mom. Um, made exactly the same money, and my mom was a nurse, and so she took great pride in in her work, and she's like Simu's mom in a film that she's the first generation medical staff in a family. So, and my dad was the one who spent much more time with me um, in educating me and raising me up, and always telling me that I can, my dream has no limit. I can dream as high as I can. I can dream even higher than, than boys. And that's how I grew up with. And I never thought that gender can have a ceiling for me uh, in that kind of regard. But with the gender income gap, I start to realize not only just me, but many of my girlfriends are forced to go back to um, their families to, you know, like um, kind of fulfill more uh, domestic duties and childcare and all that. And another really interesting thing that I noticed is when I grew up, we had the state provided free childcare system. I was in childcare at 56 days old because my mom had 55 days for her maternity leave, right? And because, you know, the childcare that was provided by my mom's hospital uh, free her up to work, you know, right after that. So, and we had all of that taken away when I had my daughter. So because of that, there's also like almost no preschools before three, three, uh, three, uh, three years old for my daughter. And I, I realized a lot of the women had to go back to, you know, be full-time moms, including myself. And I start to feel there's some injustice there. Um, and also, that was also during a time when China is transitioning from one-child policy now to encouraging women to have three kids because of a population uh, negative growth. Um, and, and I think along with that, um, because, you know, the country has, has been through a vast, you know, rapid economic growth. And then there's a lot of like imbalances, um, created because, you know, the fast speed of economic growth, um, I realized one of that is, is also gender imbalances in, in such a way that, um, things become a lot more capitalistic, right? And, um, and I think the government also realized that um, in, in a way that they're trying to revive the what's so-called Chinese identity. Um, you know, what is our cultural identity? What is, you know, how do we define as a Chinese? And part of it is reviving the legacy of our cultural, our traditional culture and all of that. And midst of that, there is a revival of uh, traditional virtues of women as well, which is really fascinating to me. And also like, 
confuse me in a lot of ways. That in a way it kind of like make us more to、um, fulfill the expectations of traditional roles of what women are、uh, compared to before. So all of this give me a sense of confusion, and and I wanted to find a way to to address it. But as you know, like in China, gender inequality is not something you can publicly talk about, and feminism is a bad word,、um, and e- even. You know today,、um, by most people, and and I think that you know I was desperately hoping to find a space to talk about this. But I know that to make a film about women's rights on the nose is never going to be seen in China. So how can I find a tool to talk about it, but without offending, you know, people, and then still find a way to be seen in China? And I think that comes with. My experience of producing films about China for the past twenty years, because I firmly believe that to tell a story about China, it's really, really important that we not only not feeding into the Western stereotype of what people look at China, but also we're not feeding into the propaganda stereotype of what you know we should say. So, how do we navigate in between、um, to find a middle ground so that our films can be seen both in China and elsewhere? Because I think it's absolutely important for films to be seen in China,、um, because these are the people who can hold us accountable as filmmakers、um, and hold us accountable of our perspectives, and also, you know, these are the people who can help us move the needle to help the society to become better. So,、um, thinking of all that, I think Nushu is get me so excited because you know, creatively, it can get me so many possibilities and opportunities、um, to make a film about this. But also, it's also a, such a subtle tool that I can talk about a lot of layers、um, that you actually saw in the film. So,、uh, in order to tell that story, you focus on、uh, two women.、Uh, one, one of the women is named Hu Sheng. She lives in the、uh, rural area, more rural than Shanghai, and she's recently divorced from an abusive marriage.、Uh, and she has a really deep knowledge of of Nushu. Um, so she has all these strengths to her, and she's mastered this ancient language, and she's navigating a world where men still seem to be in charge. But that she also has this vulnerable side, and that, that she has this expertise in something that most people don't understand. <clears throat> she feels some of the confusion that that a divorced person can feel about you know、uh, where they're going、uh, in their life. Can you describe what what drew you to her? Yes.、Um, so I knew that, you know, with with the development together with my my producers Jingchen and and Netta, that we know that we wanted to cast the millennial generation, and、um, we were also very clear that we wanted to cast both, you know, women from the rural areas and from the urban settings because their challenges、uh, in gender.、Um, Pressures are, are quite different, but same at the, around the same time.、Um, for me, what draw me to Hu Xin is her sincerity and her honesty, and I think that's absolutely the most important thing, because Nushu provides such a space to for women to be honest, to be their true self, and I I need to make sure that both of my character can be true in the space when we're making this film. But what Particularly, made me feel that that's a moment that I know that Hu Xin is going to be my main character is because、um, after the first scouting trip,、um, I had a long conversation with her during、um, the interview, and、uh, I know that you know Nushu is is 
is what gets her to where she is now. She, otherwise, she would be a farmer. And as she said in the film, so you should give her a lot of accomplishment and also give her a lot of tools to to see the world. Um, you know, other other than just being confined in this little village. Um, but what draws me is towards the end. She said that she was very. Concerned about nobody's gonna take over her work,、um, because there's no younger generation that will taking、uh, Yushu over her. Because she's very worried that one day she's gonna have a son, she has to take care of her son, and who's gonna take care of Yushu? And I remember being thinking like, why would that be a conflict, you know? But I I didn't really press her for an answer, but I kind of knew there's something there. So and she said that her her husband has been really want want her to deliver a son for her, and I was like, okay, that's interesting, and this is also still very common in rural areas about what son represents. So a couple of months later, I called her and I said, I want to come back and I want to talk to your husband, and she said, she started crying and she said three days ago he divorced me, and I said, hang on there, I'm coming to you. So from that point and then you know when I get to her. We had hours of conversations about her marriage and her personal life, and I knew that that was the point that、um, I want to follow her through because from that point on, she is going to have a different relationship with Yushu, whatever that is. But that's a moment that I know that she will need Yushu in a different way. So, and I wanted to, you know, be with her on that journey. So the other、uh, woman in the film,、uh, Simu, lives in. Shanghai. She's an artist who uses Nushu、uh, in her work. When、uh, we meet her, she's engaged to a man who at first appears supportive of her work, but as we watch in the film, the engagement goes on. It seems like his expectations of marriage in a wife's role might be different than hers. Did you see that coming when you first started filming? No, <laughs> not at all. I think that what interests me is. That she, knowing that Hu Xin is getting out of relationship, that she is getting into a relationship and a marriage, and I think that that would be very important for me to to follow her through. But you know, I, but I you know I didn't know that this is not going to work out at the beginning when we started to、um, follow her her journey. But I was thinking that you know. If they get married, she is going to experience all these pressures that I am experiencing. So even that, I was looking forward to see how she navigated that.、Um, but the other thing is, after we start to know the fiance, that you know, like I wanted to make sure that she he is actually represents so many men, particularly in Asia countries. You know, like he's not a bad person,、um, but his expectations. For woman and for himself is also really all confined by these gender, you know, confinement in 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 itself. So we wanted to kind of like have him to be in that role to you know like connect to even the man side of how people see, you know, people like him, like who who are actually trapped in his own role as well. I wonder how you navigate these situations as a filmmaker. The people that you're filming are going through tough situations. You know, you're spending a lot of time with them. They be natural for them to look to you for emotional support, or you know, your role as a filmmaker covering their work 
could potentially have a different transformative effect on their lives. Um, I wonder how you handle those things. I think, to be honest, I think as if documentary filmmakers, we can never promise anything because there are so many things that's out of our control, especially in the distribution side. Um, but what I think is, what I can control is always checking myself of my consciousness, always checking myself of my integrity here. Um, and that's what I think what we gain the trust from our characters as well, because, you know, like I think the releases doesn't mean anything. You know, when you have the trust, your subjects give you everything. And there are so many things from actually both characters that they're just so open to us. But I think it's important for us to check in ourselves when every step of the way, especially in editing, about what gets into film and, you know, like what gets in the film that serves, is it just the film or what does it serve? Or does it serve me or what does it serve? Um, so I think that, you know, for example, there are a lot of things that, you know, happened with, with, with Sumu and her fiancé after that episode of the visit to the hometown, you know, and then there's a lot of drama happened there. And, and then there's a lot of conversations about, you know, whose fault is what. And, I, I, you know, like at the end, we were like, you know, this is, this is too trivial to be included in a film that just like point out to that single person. But what we're trying to hope for audience to really see is not to see who is the antagonist, who's the protagonist, but really who they represent. So with that guideline, I hope that with what we have in the film is not to, you know, to make a character black and white, but really to give a sense of, you know, why he or she will be like this and then get, you know, um, empathy from audience. And, you know, and then I think what guided us is that, you know, when we look at the footage, we're also looking at the footage with empathy. And when we look at, you know, when we film on set, we're also filming with empathy. So I think that's what, we, that's what can guide us. But honestly, I, I keep asking myself every day, even today, that, you know, what else we can do to help with the characters, you know, to make sure that, because they have no idea what the distribution and the consequence is going to affect their lives. And, you know, we have conversations with them, but again, you know, we can predict, right? So, um. Yeah, I, I think it's ongoing kind of conversation and an ongoing learning lesson for me as a filmmaker. And I have to be honest, and I don't know that if I have made all the right choices, but all I can say is that, you know, my intention is on the integrity side and that's what I can hold on to. So another thing that we observe in the film is different efforts to commercialize a new shoe even though it's almost a dead language, there are business people who see opportunities to use the script as almost like a brand on clothing and cell phones and to sell Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder what you made of, uh, of, of this phenomenon. Sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, what I think is important to anchor this film are, I mean, at least there are two folds. One is, you know, how these women internalize the gender perceptions and gender, you know, expectations on them and what do they want it to do 
with themselves in terms of young women of who they want to be and how does the legacy of Nushu affect it and transport them in that kind of process. So the internalization of their growth, of their transformation is really, really important. But I also know that it is super important to provide a bigger context of where women are in our society and where women are in the eyes of men um, today. And I wanted to like kind of expand that from these two women. And how do we do that again without, you know, stepping on toes and then, you know, offend people um, and, and do too, too much on the nose. And I was so grateful that Nushu not only provide us a way to look at the true spirit of sisterhood, but also it can be kind of like a tool to look into this bigger landscape. Because in these commercialization scenes that we show, what I find it most interesting is that men's reaction to Nushu, you know, however they interpret Nushu, which is completely different from its original content, and however they reacted to the practitioners who is in Nushu, the way they reacted to Nushu is how they reacted to women, how they see women. And that's what I think is fascinating and interesting for me to turn my camera particularly to them in these scenes. Um, and I think the, also the other thing, the parallel of capitalism, of how that created imbalances in gender equality, but at the same time, how that even is taking away the last product that women created intentionally to you know, avoid authority, avoid men, um, is being taken over a lot of times by men as well. So there's this, you know, ironic parallel in that, but there's also the deeper kind of um, thing I wanted to reveal about where the gap of gender understanding is between men and women, if that makes sense. Well, it, I mean, it does seem wild watching the film that this, language created for women's empowerment the the museum that's created around it is is i understand is run by a man um you uh you see men who are coming to the museum uh who there's a scene where a man is kind of flirting with one of the women who is, uh, I mean, flirting may be too generous a word, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, with one of the, the, the women who are there doing uh, Nushu demonstrations. Uh, I mean, there's a real, there seems to be a lot, lack of wherewithal uh, of many of the men who are engaging with Nushu uh, that it's a... Um, you know that that it, that it's a language that represents a, a woman's shared space. Absolutely, um, and and again, I mean, think about it. The reason that you feel appalled by it is because we have a camera there, but this is actually everyday women's experiences are in China, um, and you know, like the potato scene conversation of you know men's presence in these conversations about what they should do with Nushu um, as a team, um, you know, and how women has to be politely, elegantly respond to that, but also firmly show our objection. <laughs> you know, this is our everyday life. And I wanted to show that to make both sides to see where we are still today in the, in the larger society. Um. I want to ask you about your own evolution as a filmmaker. I, 
I heard an interview with you where you described a memory from childhood that growing up in Shanghai, your your family had a rare television set in, in your neighborhood. And one time they brought it out to the alley so the neighborhood could watch a, a documentary uh, on TV. Uh, and that was really uh, striking to me because I, I think of, because well, I don't know that much about uh, documentary filmmaking in China, but my impression would be that the, the documentaries that would have been on TV when, when you were a kid w- would have been very state-sanctioned uh, documentaries. I, I, I wonder if you had strong memories of, of watching documentaries uh, as a young person. Yeah, um, I will have to say I think documentaries, especially documentary films, is not something that I'm familiar with, um, especially independent documentary film. is not something I'm familiar with growing up at all. But as I mentioned, in 1993, that's a very significant year for Shanghai because that's when that Shanghai started to open up uh, as part of the economic growth, and uh, we established our first subway line. And all of a sudden, People from the countryside, rural areas, flooded into the city um, to look for work because there's more opportunities, and then the system allowed that to happen. And I, I remember going onto the subway and smelling the smell from the countryside of the t- of the taste of mud that what everybody is calling about. And uh, and I remember me as a Shanghainese feeling the same as the other Shanghainese and not feeling anything wrong with it. You know, I was young, I was very young, but it was until this documentary came to surface. And I have to say that that's, I think, at the time that there is a lot of freedom in terms of exploring new forms of documentaries and Shanghai television is at the forefront of that. So they started this variety style documentary even in the 90s and I thought it was really so refreshing uh, for me as a young viewer. And they made a film about this lawsuit um, among this this woman from the countryside who had an illegitimate child uh, with a Shanghainese who denied the child and also the wife, um, the partner. And so she, they fired a lawsuit and through DNA um, proved that this is his, his child and then he has to take Dami and they actually build a family. And I remember watching that documentary and feeling so ashamed of myself, of the sense of the taste of mud that I remember, of feeling the kind of supreme identity of myself and knowing that there's something wrong there. And I think that was from that point on, I understand the importance of challenging our own perceptions, challenging our own assumptions and challenging our own stereotypes. And that's what kept us, you know, humble. That's what kept us, um, open to other cultures and I think that's my anchor point as a filmmaker or as a storyteller and you know I remember that the impact of that story on me and what drove me to to be a to be a journalist and and also went to Berkeley to study um, journalism and, and documentary and the first short film I made is called Changing the Taste of Mud um, and the film is actually about um, this 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 low-level bureaucrat, because of the difference of uh, class and identity between people from the rural areas and the urban areas in China, this low-level bureaucrat realized the gap and the discrimination. So he turned this piece of wasteland into a city and invited all the people from the rural areas to build a city of themselves and and uh, ironically stamped their uh, residential card from, from um, uh, peasants to citizens. 
and they truly build a city out of themselves. So the the film is called Changing the Taste of Mud, and I and I wanted to you know make this film as my first film to honor the importance of me challenging my own perception and stereotypes, and then that becomes like the thing that I I hold dear to myself every film that I make in the past twenty years. So when you went to Berkeley to study journalism and film. Uh, what were you, did, did you feel like you needed to come to the West to get that education? I did, I did, um, because I think the journalism training in the in China and then in the West is, is very different. Um, I also just, you know, growing up in Shanghai, which is a, a city that's very much influenced by Western countries and by other cultures, um, I, I always longed to, you know, expand my horizons and, and all of that. And, and also like knowing what the rest of the world is and how people live differently and how, again, how does that, how can that challenge my own perceptions, assumptions? So, I mean, all of that, I think, drove me to journalism, drove me to coming to the US um, and, and, and drove me to go back to China and continue to make films. Um, yeah, and I, I, I remember that, you know, when I, after I made the first film, Nanking, uh, as a co-producer uh, in the U.S. And, and that film did really well. Um, you know, I had a high visibilities and all of that, but I realized that um, my fellow Chinese filmmakers would never have the same resources to get the film this far. So how could, could I help them? And, and I also understand um, the perspective that they provide are also really critical um, before all the talks about equality, inclusion, and you know, in this chain whatsoever. So that was also the reason that it drove me to go back to China and made a commitment to produce films for only first-time female Chinese filmmakers. And I've heard you talk about uh, attention that you see for Chinese filmmakers who come to the West looking for funding because there are more sources for independent film funding in the West. Um, but th uh, by trying to cater to the taste of Western funders, sometimes that filmmaking you've described, uh, you know, causes those films to be tailored for a Western audience as opposed to a, a Chinese audience. Can you talk about the, the tensions <laughs> that you see there? Yeah. So, I think part of the reason, because we have no market, we have no resources. So there are a few pitch forums that's only accessible to, you know, the Chinese filmmakers has accessible accessibilities to, and those are probably the only um, resources that they can access to. And these pitch forums were attended a lot of times by Western Commission editors, you know, who um, sometimes were, you know, providing... Um, suggestions to filmmakers of in order for you to get funding, this is a film I'm looking for, you know, things like that. I think it's it's changing to become much better, but still um, that, especially a lot of filmmakers, I think that we don't even have much of an industry in China. And so there is this vast difference from there's a lot of first-time filmmakers and then there's only a very few established filmmakers and there's nothing in between. Um, and so it's, it's really hard for the first time filmmakers to navigate how to take these opinions uh, without losing their voices. So I think that it is 
I mean, it's so hard for Chinese filmmakers to to find their own voices. Part of it is because of our education. It's not very much kind of uh, individual voice nurturing kind of setting. So it's it's it you know people are hard to know like what can can say or what what is what is right to say you know on itself, while when the resources are all from elsewhere, it just makes it even harder for them to navigate for themselves. So I think that in that kind of space, um, when I work with filmmakers, a lot of my work is to helping them to find their own voice. And, and that becomes the crucial kind of uh, learning curve and the crucial kind of role of, of me as a producer. And I didn't realize that along that way, I also found my own voice. And that's why when I took over Hidden Letters, I was, you know, I was, I was very nervous to direct uh, as the first time, but then I was really embracing of looking back of what I gained from producing and using that as my anchor to, to embrace my own voice. And I knew that, you know, the, the more time I spent with Hidden Letters, the more I was very clear that I do have one. I want to thank Violet Dufang for speaking with me. Hidden Letters is now available on Video On Demand. I'm entering 2023 with a New Year's resolution to bring you more episodes more frequently. On Instagram this month, we're turning over the pure nonfiction feed to several filmmakers for them to share a day of their visual diary. I hope you'll follow their posts and share them. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.